0: Our help is in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, who would not give us up. Blessed be the Lord, for his unfailing love. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, our help is in the name of the Lord, blessed be the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father. We are so grateful that you are on our side. and We pray that we live our lives in such a way that we can show you how thankful we are. Thankful for what you've done for us. Thankful that you've created the church. Thankful that we get to tell the great story of salvation. And thankful that we get to live it. Thank you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Those of you who are well-versed in history probably know the date December 7th. know what happened on December 7th? That's right, the Battle of Prairie Grove, Arkansas happened on December the 7th. (laughs) 1862, 2,600 Americans lost their lives. You know what else happened on December 7th, 1941? Pearl Harbor, right? Where 200 less people lost their lives, but still a great loss, no doubt. Why is it that we memorialize December the 7th, 1941 as a day that will live in infamy, but we don't memorialize December the 7th, 1862 when 2,600 Americans lost their lives? Why do we honor one but not the other? Could it be that we are really good at seeing the sins of others and maybe not so good at seeing our own? Could it be that it's easier to memorialize or to think about and reflect upon and get angry about even a cruel act that's been perpetrated against us and not so much when we've turned on ourselves? I mean, you think about that. 2,600 Americans lost their lives because we couldn't get along. People in our own nation took up sides and fought against one another in just one battle in 1862 in Prairie Grove, Arkansas, right close to where I used to live in my own backyard. 2,600 Americans died at their own hands. And maybe it's easier to memorialize December the 7th, 1941 because we had an enemy attack us. See, I think it's kind of human nature that we're pretty good at pointing out the sins of others and and maybe playing the victim when it's been perpetrated against us, but maybe we're not so good at it when we know that we are at fault and that it's our own doing. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, it reads, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankful in, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's do something just a moment that I always caution you not to do. Let's pluck a verse out of context here. And let's look at it for just a moment. Notice Paul writes, So you also must forgive. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The question we're trying to answer this morning is not, do I have to forgive? Because you do. And the Bible is very clear on that. And you'll notice that Scripture doesn't say, you must forgive if. There are no conditions, no if, ands, or buts. Forgiveness is an obligation for us. Must is a non-negotiable term. And so the question, do I have to forgive, is answered for us already. Yes. But Chris, it's difficult. It's hard. You don't know what they did to me. I understand. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. But at the end of the day, we must forgive. But where I want to focus our attention this morning is why. Not just because the Bible says so. I think there's two good reasons, biblical reasons, godly reasons, why we must forgive. And the first is this. Because you're forgiven. Notice. Verse 1 of Colossians 3. Now let's go back to doing what I always tell you to do. Let's read bigger chunks. And let's read the context. Verse 1, Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you, too, once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and, put a, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, there are some words or phrases that I want you to pay attention to here in this passage. You'll notice If then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things that are above. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and have put on the new self. Paul is transitioning here. He is making a transition. He had just completed a discussion about philosophy and false teaching, and after explaining to the Christians in Colossae how they were not to buy into these false philosophies and teachings, Paul gives positive and negative reasons for why the Christian should not do these things and why he should not buy in to what the world is selling. Chapter 3 is a continuation of this thought. Paul is moving here from the From the warning to the reason, and the reason why they should avoid worldly principles is because, quite simply, they don't belong to the world. They used to, but they don't anymore. And so, Paul is telling them the reason you avoid all these things is because you're different. You're not like the world around you, you have been immersed. With Christ, You've been raised with Christ in baptism. These people had shared in Jesus' burial and resurrection. And so Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, which they had, then you approach life differently. And Paul goes on to talk about the transformation that should follow the experience of being immersed into Christ. Look again at verses 12 through 17 where we read from a moment ago, where Jack also read from in our opening. Notice the traits of one who has been born again. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Love, peace, be thankful. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. You must forgive. And why? Because you're different. You're not like the world around you. The world around you seeks revenge, you seek forgiveness. Because you're different than the world. You set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You put to death what is earthly in you. You don't act like the world. You don't talk like the world. You don't think like the world. You don't, you don't speak like the world. You have put on the new self, and you are being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. And the natural result of all of this is what? Compassion, humility, meekness, all those things. And, of course, forgiving one another. You do realize that Paul is speaking to the church here, don't you? He's not speaking to prospective Christians. He's speaking to people who were already Christians. And wouldn't you think that this would be a moot point? Why do you think that he would even have to mention this? I mean, surely Christians understand forgiveness, don't they? Why would you even have to talk about forgiveness to a people who has been forgiven? But apparently it was an issue then, just as it is today, right? Even Christians struggle with forgiveness. And I certainly don't want to be be making light of anything that you may have dealt with in your personal life. Some of us have been hurt to the point that we wonder if we could ever forgive. Some of us have dealt with things that have rocked us to our core. We find forgiveness extremely difficult, if not next to impossible. But Paul is approaching this. And he is saying that at the end of the day, you are different. And I don't know about you, but I don't always want to forgive. I hate to say it, but that is not always my first reaction. My first reaction is revenge. My first reaction, if I've been hurt deeply, is I want to see the other person get what's coming to them. I want to see them suffer a little bit before I forgive them. I hate to admit that, but I have been in that position, and I've thought that way. It's kind of like these action movies that you watch starring Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, some of you young people don't know who those two guys are. But there was a day and time when they were the, uh, the action hero of the day. And I watched those movies, and maybe you're like me. They all start off with the action hero's wife being killed or kidnapped. I mean, that's the plot of every one of them, right? And the whole movie is about the action hero tracking down the villain and getting his revenge. And I sit on the edge of my seat waiting to see the villain get what's coming to him. But what if, at the end of the movie, at the climax of the plot... You have Bruce Willis or Tom Cruise, again, two guys you probably don't know who they are, but what if at the end of the movie they're standing there with gun loaded and finger on the trigger and they decide to drop the gun and they look at the villain and the two of them embrace and they say, I forgive you, and the credits roll the end. I'd be pretty disappointed. I would not give that movie four or five stars, would you? Because I don't watch movies like that to see forgiveness. I watch movies like that to satisfy my sense of justice. That's why they're popular. That's why we like them. Because we want to see the bad guy get tortured and maimed. It's okay if he's a bad guy, right? It's okay to torture and maim the bad guy. And so we watch the movie to get our sense of justice gratified. But do we really want that? Do we really want that in our own lives? Do we really want the villain to get what's coming to them? Do we really want the offender to get what's coming to them? And I propose to you that we don't because guess what? You're the villain. And if we were starring in an action movie, we wouldn't be the hero. We would be the enemy. And you know who the hero would be? Jesus Christ. And the villain tortured and maimed him. People like you and me tortured and maimed the hero, and he let it happen. And not only did he let it happen while on the cross, he asked for forgiveness for those who were torturing and maiming him. You don't want what you think you deserve, and you sure don't want the villain to get what's coming to him, because that would mean that you would get what you deserve. Forgiveness is a product of being someone who thinks differently, who lives differently differently. The kind of person who is compassionate and humble and meek and all those things that Paul talked about, including forgiving. Forgiveness is a product of all those. It's a product of one who is all of those things. One who has been raised in Christ. One who has put on the new self. One who has set their minds on things above. Forgiveness is indicative of one who is being transformed. No matter how long that we have been a Christian No matter how much we say that we love Jesus, there is always the temptation to act in an ungodly manner. We will always fight the tendency to respond in a worldly way. I really struggle with this, and I know many of you do as well. However, what I struggle with the most when it comes to forgiveness, and what I hate to admit, is this. I am what I despise. I despise gossip, but I have gossiped. I despise people who slander other people, but I've done that. I don't like hypocrites, but I've been hypocritical. I don't like people who lie, but I've lied to save my neck. At the end of the day, In my struggle with forgiveness, I have to be reminded of this, and hopefully you do as well. We are what we despise. It's easy to see the sins in other people. Not so easy to see them in ourselves. It's easy to take someone to task for what they've done to us. It's a whole lot harder to see what we have done to other people. We are what we despise. On June the seventeenth, twenty fifteen, a twenty-one year old Caucasian man by the name of Dylan Roof walked into the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he sat down with twelve others for a Bible study at the church. And as the Bible study concluded, everyone closed their eyes to pray. And at that point, Dylan Roof stood up and pulled a gun and began firing while shouting racial slurs. Roof reloaded his gun five times. Six women and three men were killed. And at the trial for Dylan Roof, many congregants from the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church were present, and they were given the opportunity to speak. And Nadine Collier, a daughter of one of the victims, said this. She said, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me, and I will never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. She continued, You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. Wanda Simmons, granddaughter of one of the victims, had this to say. She said, She said, Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and that their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. And I just want to thank the court for making sure that hate doesn't win. I don't know about you, but if I put myself in the position of these living victims, I don't know that I could say those things. I don't understand that as much as I understand one person who was also allowed to speak who said this. Forgiveness is a process, and I'm not there. One day I hope to be able to forgive you. My biggest hope is that you find Jesus there in your cell. I can relate to those words, because I have been there where forgiveness is a process, and I wasn't there yet. But you have to get there, don't you? Again, forgiveness is not an option. You have to get there. And you look at all this and you say, well, I am what I despise. And you, you read stories like the one in Dylan Roof's situation. And it becomes very clear that forgiveness is offering the unthinkable to the undeserving. And that includes you. God offered the unthinkable to undeserving sinners like you and I. We are grouped in that category. As New Testament Christians, as Christ followers, we are different. We offer the unthinkable to the undeserving. We offer the example of forgiveness. We show the world around us that there is a better way to operate. We were dead but resurrected to new life. We are forgiveness personified. We are a living, breathing example of how the rebellious can be redeemed. We are a walking billboard for the redemption story. And because of all of this, we must forgive. It is an obligation, but it's more than that. It's not just because the Bible tells us to. It's because we were the same and now we're different. But there's something else here. And I want you to notice what Paul writes over in Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 31, he writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. If you're following along in your Bible, you have a heading most likely above this section. Right above verse 17, I should say, depending on what version you use, it says something like the new life or the Christian's walk or instructions for Christian living. You'll remember that this section of words that we're studying in the One Word Series is all about character transformation. And forgiveness is vital to our transformation as a Christian. It is a product of being different. And it is a natural byproduct of one who puts away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. It is the result of a, of a person being tenderhearted and kind. And it comes from the recognition that the life I live in Christ is not just vertical, it is horizontal as well, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the cross, you notice you have two different beams, right? You have a vertical beam and you have a horizontal beam. And both of those beams should remind us of something. The vertical beam should remind us of our relationship with God. We look up to Him and we seek His forgiveness for what we have done and how we have offended Him. But there's also a horizontal beam. And that reminds us that on either side of us, there are relationships that we must foster with other people, with other Christians, right? So the horizontal beam reminds us that we are in community, that we are in family with one another. The vertical beam shows us our relationship with God. The horizontal shows us our relationship with other people, people that God loves, people that were created in his image, and people that we cannot hate, but that we must forgive. Scripture also shows us this. 1 John 2, 9-11, through 11, Whoever says he is the light in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You go over to chapter 3 and verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Go over to verse 7 to verse 12 in chapter 4, and it reads, Beloved, let us love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And so over and over again throughout the New Testament, we see the horizontal bar put into place, showing us, reminding us that we are in relationship not only with God, but with God's people. And we see one formula that stands out above all others, and that is loving God equals loving His people. The two go hand in hand. You cannot separate the two. In fact, our salvation seems to be tied to it. Does not John say whoever hates his brother is still in darkness? In chapter 3, he even states that those who hate their brothers are murderers. So you cannot divorce God and loving him from loving his people. You cannot love God and his people without exercising forgiveness either. That is crucial to a relationship, isn't it? Your ability to forgive demonstrates the genuineness of your own salvation. It demonstrates that you really comprehend what Jesus did for you on the cross. That you understand that you are what you despise. And thanks be to God that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You have been plucked from the fires of hell and that should resonate with you daily, moment by moment. And it should be the catalyst for you forgiving others. Your ability to forgive also demonstrates your maturity in Christ. You know, the greatest mark of maturity in your daily walk with God is not the fact that you come to church every time the doors are open. There are a lot of immature Christians who come to church week in, week out. The mark of maturity for the Christian is not that they give every Sunday. There are a lot of wealthy individuals who give a lot of money, but they're immature in Christ. The mark of maturity for the Christian is not that you read your Bible every day. There are a lot of people who read their Bible, who can memorize and, re- and quote parts of the Bible, maybe large sections of the Bible, but they're not living it. I submit to you that the greatest test, the biggest mark for our maturity in Christianity is your ability to forgive. That's it. I, I think the biggest test for our Christian maturity is can we forgive? Are we willing to forgive? Can we let it go? You must forgive, and the reason why is because you are different. You're not like the world around you. You used to be, you used to be just like the world around you, but you're different now. You have been forgiven. Therefore, you you put away all anger and wrath and malice, and the love of Christ dwells in you. And you must forgive because Paul said, just as God has forgiven you, so you've been forgiven. Understand, this is not merely an obligation. Forgiveness shouldn't be met as my Christian duty. I just have to do it. Don't like to, but I've got to do it. Forgiveness should define us as a Christian. Forgiveness is a product of the heart. It's the result of love. It is character, not duty. It is stemming from a deep and profound understanding that we are what we despise. Our salvation depends on it, and therefore we can't be stingy with it. I have an illustration to tie all this together, and rather than me just say it to you, I'm going to let you see it. I hope that's okay, but this is a short two-minute news report that sums up everything that I have just said.
0: It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in '05. Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of, and arrested him for, dealing drugs. You saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim. But not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I falsified the report. THIS IS FORMER BENTON HARBOR POLICE OFFICER, ANDREW COLLINS. WERE YOU JUST TRYING TO CHALK UP AN ARREST? BASICALLY, THE START OF THAT DAY, I WAS GOING TO MAKE SURE I HAD ANOTHER DRUG ARREST. AND IN THE END, YOU PUT AN INNOCENT GUY IN JAIL? CORRECT. YEAH. YOU LOST EVERYTHING. I LOST EVERYTHING. MY ONLY GOAL WAS TO SEEK HIM WHEN I GOT HOME AND TO HURT HIM. REALLY? THAT WAS MY GOAL. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamel was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey, guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, Mosaic. A faith-based employment agency where they now work side-by-side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. And I said, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear today they're not only cordial Saturday we went to the trampoline park they're friends uh, you know we talk about life such close friends. not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him and I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that uh, he, I don't deserve that you know did you forgive for his sake or for yours no for our sake not just us for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. Grab this We'll set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds,
1: what's our excuse? What's your excuse? If you have a need this morning that we can help you with? If you need to offer forgiveness or if you need the forgiveness of your sins and you're ready to have them washed away in the waters of baptism, don't leave here today without being forgiven or without offering forgiveness to someone you need to offer it to. We are a family, and a family forgives. Come now as we stand and as we sing.